0: This is Market Currents from Northern Trust, where we explore facts, patterns, and expert opinions to answer today's most difficult market questions. Welcome to Market Currents. I'm Katie Nixon, the Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management at Northern Trust. Now, we're here today to talk about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has altered global energy markets, perhaps permanently. This war is a direct conflict between two of the world's dominant commodity exporters with repercussions that are being felt already around the world, and particularly in Europe given the significant dependence it has on Russian oil and in particular natural gas, and as more global consumers are banning Russian energy. Now there's clearly the will in Europe to reduce this kind of dependence as quickly as possible, but it's unclear as to the way at this point. Now, all that said, the direction of travel today and in the future is clearly away from Russian energy, so we're all trying to figure out what this means to energy prices. I'm so pleased to welcome Jackson Hockley. Jackson is Northern Trust's senior analyst covering energy, and he's going to discuss with us all of the repercussions, what those energy market disruptions mean for producers and consumers as well, and how this will impact plans for a longer-term green energy transition. So, Jackson, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Katie. I appreciate it. Glad to be here.
0: So let's start this discussion close to home. Let's start here in the U.S. And to be sure, the U.S. government is highly involved in the political elements of this conflict. But the U.S. is also one of the world's largest energy producers and exporters. As much of the world works to isolate Russia from global markets, we recently heard from the Biden administration that the U.S. is going to step into supplying Europe with with, uh, LNG, or liquefied natural gas. So uh, let's talk about whether you think the U.S. energy supplies might be part of the solution and offset the loss of output that we expect from Russia.
1: Well, first off, let's uh, provide a little bit of background, and I'll mention that I'm going to touch on oil, natural gas, and also just a pinch on coal, but... Bringing in the background, looking specifically at the oil market first, global consumption actually peaked at around 101.7 million barrels a day in the second half of 2019. And then it declined to around 92 million barrels a day during the height of the pandemic in 2020. However, we've seen a gradual recovery since that time, and right now we're almost back to the peak. We're at about 100 million barrels a day of demand. And assuming we don't have a problem with continued lockdowns in China or expanded lockdowns in China, that would suggest that we're probably going to see demand in the second half of this year, maybe to an all-time record of about 102 to 103 million barrels a day. Now quickly touching on coal, coal is the one area that's actually been put under sanction by Western countries against Russia. We think that there is going to have to be some shift in demand or supplies of coal going forward, particularly with Australia and the U.S. supplying more coal to Europe as they move away from Russian coal. Then turning to natural gas, as you noted earlier, natural gas is really important to Europe. About 38 to 40% of Europe's supply of natural gas comes from Russia. And so consequently, there's going to be a huge need for Western Europe to actually move away from Russia. But it's not going to happen quickly. It's going to take time. And then more importantly, turning to crude oil, which is where we've seen the bulk of the gains in terms of price across the world. And in crude oil, Russia produces about 11 million barrels a day with about 7.5 million barrels a day going into the export market. Now, if we see full sanctions, which once again I'll repeat, they have not been put in place against oil or natural gas, but if there were full sanctions, of that 7.5 million barrels a day, probably about 5 million barrels a day would literally be taken off the global market. If we have self-sanctionings, which is what we're seeing so far with a number of countries and companies just simply saying we won't do business with Russia, we won't take Russian crude, then there's a possibility that we'll see that self-sanctioning take anywhere from one to three million barrels a day of Russian crude off the market. Now, there's been a lot of media attention about, as you noted earlier, the U.S. ability to kind of be able to step in and fill that gap. Of course we don't know how big the gap is. It could be anywhere from, as I noted earlier, one to five million barrels a day. Right now the U.S. is expected to grow production this year about 800,000 barrels a day. So that's pretty much baked into the numbers everybody's using. If we do increase, based on higher oil prices, our activity levels in the field, we might be able to eke out another 200 to 300,000 barrels a day. And so that would mean we'd have a growth year over year of about a million barrels a day. and. Even if we do that, it's only going to put us for the full year at output of 11.8 million barrels a day. Now that's down from the full year 2019 peak, which was 12.3 million barrels a day. So it's important to note that yes, the U.S. can grow production, but we're not back to where we were pre-COVID-19 downturn. I think it's going to be a challenge for the U.S. to be able to bring on a lot of production going forward. Uh, I know for a fact that we're simply not in the heady days where we were growing production at one and a half to two million barrels a day. I think those days are over with, and they're over with for a number of reasons. And I'll go through a couple of them quickly. Um, first off, production growth and returns, which for a long time were focused primarily on production growth and not returns, that dynamic has shifted Oil companies are focused in the U.S. on trying to boost their returns and free cash flow generation, with most of that free cash flow generation then being returned to shareholders via dividends and also share purchase programs. Additionally, it's important to note that management's compensation and their incentive programs have also been adjusted so that they're going to be paid for returning cash to shareholders. And as we all know, you're going to get what you pay for. And so if they're being paid for returns, that's what they're going to give you and not production growth. Additionally, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the amount of outside capital going into the industry. Also, the U.S. is not discovering new large hydrocarbon-rich basins in the lower 48. Additionally, a number of the key basins, such as the Bakken and the Eagleford, have actually reached maturity, and so their production is probably gonna be flat on a go-forward basis and not growing like it was for the past 10 years. Additionally, most of the high-quality acreage has already been drilled. Also, what we're seeing with the recent activity in pickup activity in the US lower 48 basin we're running into some real supply chain issues, particularly around labor and steel. Also, in the oil service industry, like everything else in oil and gas, it massively downsized prior to the pandemic and did even more during the pandemic. And consequently, we're running it close to capacity for things like drilling rigs and frack fleets and frack crews. So the ability for the U.S. to, to turn up their activity is fairly modest at this point, And we'll probably take some time for that to change. Now, if we back away and just very briefly talk about what's happening in the rest of the global market, we have very little production that can come online. We have about something in the neighborhood of 400,000 barrels a day of remaining production that can come on on a monthly basis over maybe the next six months until the OPEC Plus group has pretty much exhausted all of their quotas that they had. After that, you're going to have only about a million barrels a day that could come on from Iran, assuming a nuclear deal is done. Once that's over with, then we're going to be eating into what has historically been looked at as excess or flex capacity of about a million barrels a day in Saudi Arabia and about a million barrels a day in the UAE. So pretty much the world at this point isn't fully tapped out, but we're running real tight on capacity. And because of all the factors I just noted, I don't think that the U.S. is going to be able to fill that gap. Maybe they can contribute a little bit, but it looks like to me, globally, we're going to have tight supply and demand over the long term.
0: I guess it's no surprise the energy sector is not immune to the overall tight labor markets that we have here in the U.S. And I think your point is well made. There's no magic switch to flip here. Ramping up production, even if management decides to do this, takes time. And your comments about LNG and our, our promises to Europe, I think, are in the context also of, of challenging infrastructure there. So it's going to take quite a while to to build the facilities that are that are needed to uh, to keep that flowing. So great points there on the supply side. So let's switch the, to, to the demand side. And one of the biggest sources of global energy demand, as we know, is China. And as noted, the unprovoked attack on Ukraine has created this massive global response and really what looks to be sort of a redrawing of the global alliances and interests with the U.S. and Western-aligned countries responding quite differently from some other countries, notably China, where there really has not been a meaningful public response. So how do you see Russia's isolation from European and Western energy markets playing out if we look east?
1: This is kind of a tricky situation. And... It's made even more so by the fact that we've seen all these recently reported atrocities that have been committed by Russia and Ukraine, and in my mind that just suggests that the penalties that will be pushed on Russia are probably gonna be fairly severe and are probably gonna be longer lasting than many people thought, at least going into the war. Um, When we look at what, China's role will be most people at this point expect that If there's less oil taken by the European countries and even the US That some of that volume will end up being picked up by China And to a certain extent also by India now keep in mind that at this point Russia does have excess They don't have a lot of storage capacity so their production has to find a market as a result Russia has severely discounted the price of their oil by as much as $30 a barrel versus Brent. And so consequently, we are seeing some buyers step up. We would have expected China to take more, but we're also seeing that um, India is stepping in and buying more crude at this point. And I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't some other Asian countries that decide to do the same thing. So on the crude side, uh, China's gonna have some impact It's a little bit less clear what's going to happen with natural gas because this is a huge challenge for Europe. Europe, as I noted earlier, is a big importer of natural gas and there is really no major additional outlets for that natural gas to go into Asia. So it's not a clean situation for Russia in in terms of being able to move that capacity someplace else. But it also does bring up a related issue that's going to be very sticky in the near term and even maybe the intermediate term. And that is the fact that for Europe to divorce itself from natural gas, it's going to have to heavily rely on the LNG market or the market for liquefied natural gas. And so to do that, and even we've seen it to to date so far, cargoes of LNG that were headed to Asia have been largely rerouted to Europe. And they're helping to fill that gap as Europe tries to build storage in advance of this coming winter. On a go-forward basis, considering that European governments have already stated that they want to significantly reduce exposure to Russian natural gas, there has to be more natural gas via LNG that moves to Europe. Now, the U.S. can add incremental volumes over the next couple of years, but outside of that, and maybe some volumes out of Qatar, there aren't any big projects coming online that are going to bail out Europe. So it's my estimate that we're going to continue to see cargoes of LNG routed to to Europe from Asia. But on the reverse side, then, the question has to arise, okay, what is Asia going to do in terms of being able to, to meet their demand for energy? And it looks like at this point they're going to have to increasingly turn to coal. So we're in one of those crazy dichotomies where... As we move the supplies of energy around the world, there are going to be some disconnects, one of which is that Asia is probably going to have to use more coal, which most countries at this point don't want to use coal or would prefer to move away from it as part of the energy transition. So once again, it's a very tricky situation. And at this point, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but uh, it is going to be a challenge.
0: So let's let's stay on that topic of this energy transition and certainly this is capturing more front page uh, space right now amid this really upward pressure globally on energy prices and the increased pressure for broader sanctions against Russian exports, Jackson. as you noted, the, the more the longer this war goes on and the, 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 the reports of the atrocities, are increasingly isolating Russia, and you know many are saying that maybe green energy is the ultimate solution, particularly for Europe. Um, but others are pretty wary of, of, leaning, on, uh, of leaning on green energy here uh, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is many of the materials that are critical for greening have either also risen substantially in price or in some cases come from Russia or Ukraine. So in your opinion, does the world have to choose between supporting Ukraine and a green energy transition?
1: Yes, KAT, I hate to admit it, but on the surface, it kind of appears that at least in the near term, that's going to be the situation around what's happening in Ukraine. Um, By supporting the government of Ukraine and also applying sanctions on Russia, you know, many countries are going to have to shift to coal. And in part, we're seeing that in Europe. And of course, in Europe, it's a voluntary decision. In the case of China, as I noted earlier, it's not voluntary. They're they're just going to have to have more coal because there isn't going to be as much available LNG. And you're right, there are concerns about how do we make this transition to the green economy, considering everything that's going on in the world at the current time. And I have to admit, I do have a couple of concerns in the near term. First off, and this is a geopolitical question and I think many people have to really kind of um, sit back, understand the situation and decide how to make uh, an informed decision going forward. And I mention this because I don't think most of the investors are actually aware of it, but we've talked in the past about the fact that we have been reliant on the Middle East for oil and on the other hand, And now we know that we're to a certain extent reliant on Russia for oil. But when you turn to many of the key materials that we'll need for the energy transition, we're going to be even more reliant on China because China is the largest producer of rare earth minerals. And in addition to that, they are the primary processor of most of the critical minerals that go into the energy transition. And when I say... A large processor, I mean 35 to 60 percent of these critical minerals. And those minerals include copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, and rare earths. And so, consequently, from a geopolitical standpoint, as the energy transition goes on, or if we try to accelerate it, we're going to become even more reliant on a single supplier than we've ever been in the legacy industry of oil and gas. The second situation that kind of bothers me is that when we look at Ukraine, We already know that a lot of the key minerals were in a situation where demand and supply were relatively tight. When we take in the situation in Russia and what we potentially could lose from Russia, for the most part, it's a relatively minor 2 to 5% of global supplies. However, even with that very small amount that potentially is taken off the market we've seen massive jumps in the prices of a number of those key materials or minerals. I think the problem, while it will vary and there'll be volatility around it in the very short term, I think this is a really critical issue because if you look at the mining industry, over the past um, six to seven years, capital spending to bring on new mining capacity has been at 30-year trough levels. And additionally, many of the mining companies are going down the same path as the oil and gas companies and simply saying, we're going to take our free cash flow and give it back to shareholders. So you have an industry that's going to be heavily relied on for the energy transition. And at the same time, in my opinion, they're not investing nearly enough. And then finally, there was a 2021 study by the Energy or International Energy Agency that showed that securing the massive supplies of the necessary critical materials to reach net zero by 2050 is going to be an exceedingly daunting task. And considering the fact that we've underspent what we probably need to, I see a massive challenge in front of the world in terms of trying to do that energy transition, even if there is a desire by investors and governments to try and accelerate it at this point in time.
0: Indeed. It's very, very, very complicated. And your point about even though Russia is only two to two to five percent of of some of these inputs, everything happens at the margin, Jackson. As you know, these are global commodities that are priced at the margin. So it matters. It matters a great deal. But I don't I want to leave our listeners maybe with with some positives. So let's try to end uh, if we can on a positive note and thinking about whether there are actually any silver linings to this whole terrible situation we've talked a lot about the shortfalls and trade-offs that we're going to have to make um, all make pretty soon probably Um, are there any positive outcomes that we can see among all these difficult challenges
1: i think there are some uh, silver linings out there but um, i think it's more of a call to rationality than what we've seen in the past and so let me give you just a little bit of background on this You know, one of the things that seems to have been overlooked and was brought directly into the view with the whole situation in Russia and Ukraine was the concept of energy security. And I think this is one of those things that is going to have a lot more impact going forward. Now, keep in mind that as we stand today, over 80% of the world's energy comes from hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, and coal. And so they are going to continue to be major sources of energy going forward. However, in my opinion, we are at a stage where I think governments can begin to step back and say, this is not just an either or of green energy versus legacy energy. It's more a situation of if we decide that we want to go down this path of the energy transition, then maybe we need to re-evaluate the entire energy spectrum and come to the conclusion that there are more than just either or decisions, but there's actually a number of factors that all have to be balanced. And they include energy security, but also energy availability, reasonable energy prices. And when you mix all of those things together, if you do it properly and you do it in a strategic and logical way, then you can actually continue to have a very healthy and growing global economy. And I think that after all this situation has taken place in Russia, Ukraine, that we're at the point where a lot of governments are going to begin to sit back and say, okay, maybe this headlong dive into green energy, while we had good intentions, maybe we need to step back and look at a more logical path in terms of being able to meet all the necessary factors so that we can grow the economy going forward and not necessarily have to fight with high prices and a the lack of availability of energy. So I think we're at the cusp of maybe some positive change, and we'll just have to see if the governments decide to go down that path.
0: That is a great way to to end our discussion. We definitely need parallel tracks here and a more holistic approach that really, I mean, everything that you've said requires bringing in all the stakeholders um, All the right stakeholders to the table. So um, you're right, it's not an either or, but in this case, um, definitely a both and. So, Jackson, I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights today. And I would like to thank everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Market Currents from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining
1: specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel.